Inga Witcher, fourth generation dairy farmer, milking cows and making cheese on my small farm in Wisconsin. And I'm Matt Kinzera, and I know next to nothing about farming, but I'm on this food and farming adventure. Gather with us around the farm table. thankful for the quiet arrival of November. The summer season has slowly come to an end, marked by the bounty of potatoes and onions in the root cellar, and the last of the green tomatoes ripening on the windowsill. A few weeks ago, the cows began needing larger paddocks to find enough grass to sustain milk production, before switching to a diet of all meadow hay until spring. For me, the fall is a time to catch my breath and rest from the hustle of summer and prepare myself for the long, cold Midwest winter. Fall is a fire in the wood stove and a rich stew for supper. Well, Inga, here we are. It's Thanksgiving. Like Thanksgiving week is upon us and the holidays are here. And of course, they're a little bit unique this year, but there's some things that are the same as always. And one of those things is that there is a strange thing that shows up on everybody's table during Thanksgiving. And it seems to be arguably the most controversial part of Thanksgiving and that is the cranberries. Some people love them, some people hate them. 400 million pounds of cranberries are consumed in America and 20% of that is consumed during the week of Thanksgiving. 20% of all the cranberries are only consumed the week of Thanksgiving. Is that crazy? That makes sense, though, because I honestly see zero cranberries in my house unless it's Thanksgiving. And it's not a not a staple part of my diet for sure. But definitely cranberries and Thanksgiving go together more than just about anything else other than turkey and pumpkin pie. Well, you know, when I think about Thanksgiving and think about all the things that are on the table for Thanksgiving, it really makes sense because cranberries are harvested in September, October. Pumpkins would be a good keeper to then make pies this time of the year. Turkeys are finished growing this time of the year. So it's kind of like makes sense for all these foods to show up this time of the year. And yeah, and so that we have these traditions with these cranberries and we really should be using them throughout the year in our diets because they're really healthy for us. They're full of antioxidants. They're full of vitamin C. I know some people, I've met some cranberry growers before who will actually take raw cranberries and puree them with some water and drink like two cups of that every day just for health reasons. I tried it and I could not stomach it at all. It was a little too much. You know, the the space that I like cranberries, so I, I take a little bit of it back because even though cranberries are not something I find on my dinner table a lot. It shows up in my breakfast a lot because I love those craisins they're called, I think. Oh, we use those in scones. We use, we use dried cranberries a lot, especially after moving to Wisconsin because Wisconsin is the number one grower of cranberries in the United States and one of the top in the world for cranberry growing. That is fascinating, but 
anybody who lives in Wisconsin, for the listeners who live in Wisconsin, we all know that there is a main highway that cuts through the middle of the state from the northwest down to the southeast. And as you're about halfway on that trip, you will go past a bunch of cranberry farms. And that's that's the only reason I probably knew that cranberries were a big part of agriculture in Wisconsin. Right. I remember driving through that sort of cranberry section of Wisconsin when I first moved here and I saw these huge signs for ocean spray. And I kept thinking, wait a minute, like, where did I take a wrong turn and end up on the East Coast? Like, why is ocean spray in the middle of the country? I had no idea that this was a region for growing cranberries, but they're actually a native plant of Wisconsin. That is fascinating. And we are so fortunate today because we get to talk to a cranberry farmer. I met Aurora a few years ago when we were filming one of our shows for Around the Farm Table. And she was on the farm that we were interviewing and we, we got to talking and she's really an interesting young lady. She's an ethnobotanist, and I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. But the good news is I don't think anybody will have heard that fra- that term before. So if you pronounce it wrong, just sound like you know what you're saying and everybody will go with it. This is the correct way to pronounce this word, <laughs> whatever way I say it. <laughs> so an ethnobotanist, from what I understand, is someone who studies the relationships between plants and people. And when you think about it, some of our, our plants really need people to survive. We certainly need plants to survive. And it's just, it's such an interesting study. And she fell into this line of work after growing up on a cranberry farm and falling in love with nature. But I'll let her tell you about her background. My name is Aurora Crane, and I'm one of four kids, child number three, and uh, my parents grow cranberries. Uh, we have Crane Cranberry Company. It's in just east of Toma, Wisconsin. We've had it since 1993, so we're almost reaching 30 years. Actually, on my birth tape, my mom just had me in the hospital, and uh, my dad asked my mom a question after just having me. It's like, and Linda, what did we decide this year? we're going to become cranberry farmers. Like we're going to buy a cranberry farm as child three or four was coming into the world. So I've been growing up in and around cranberries my whole life. I would say I'm an honorary cranberry farmer. Cranberries is just a really unique case study, I think. You know, it's a native crop to much of the east half of the country up into Canada, uh, east of the Mississippi, you know, up into Canada. And um, it's a plant that's been used by native peoples here for a long time. But in cultivation, it has a more recent chapter. Like she said, cranberries are native to Wisconsin. And cranberries are really special because they're a sustainable crop to harvest. A cranberry bush will survive up to 40 years, which is pretty incredible when you think about replanting your garden every spring with having to put in new corn or new beans, new tomato plants, where cranberries, they're in that marsh for 40 years. Here in Wisconsin, we have 21,000 acres of cranberries, which isn't that much when you consider that we're growing 3.8 million acres of corn. I didn't even realize that we had that many acres in Wisconsin. 
Inga, it sounds like you've been doing quite a deep dive of research on cranberries and agriculture. I don't know. Have you had like a pause in the cheese making business that you're just digging into your nerdy farming stuff? The thing is, I just got Wi-Fi on the farm. So I've been having like a really deep Google dive on these things. But listen, Matt, how often do you think about the ingredients on your Thanksgiving table? I don't think I think about it at all all which i hope maybe that will change because really all i'm thinking about is what do i want to eat and what don't i want to eat well one thing that i want people to remember is the folks behind all of this food everything that that the farmers are growing and where it's coming from so like you know here in wisconsin we're the number one producers of cranberries in the united states you know, we're growing all of these cranberries and a lot of them are being exported out to different countries, different parts of the United States. A lot of them are going into juice. There's so much involved in growing of these cranberries. At Thanksgiving, like I want people to be really thankful for what they have and what was put into growing cranberries, right? Yes. I think that's a great thought process to think less about just what we're going to eat and realize more about how it got to be on our table. And I think that's really interesting we don't hear about this a lot about Wisconsin being this huge state for cranberries. We're known as the dairy state. There's a lot of other things that we're known for, but I don't hear a lot of conversation about cranberries. And honestly, I'm not so sure that I knew how big of a cranberry state we were until just recently. Well, I'm glad I came into your life, Matt, so that you can have that information. That makes two of us. Yeah, so cranberries are actually, this is our biggest fruit export that's coming out of Wisconsin and our most valuable fruit export. And unless you've been here, been driving through that road you were talking about to look at the cranberry marshes, it's really hard to imagine what they look like. So I want to let Aurora describe them to us. Cranberries grow on a perennial vine. So they look like, you know, from afar when you're not in the bed, um, it looks like just a carpet of vines. When you get up close, you can see that they're grown in what's called a bed. And the vines are trained half in one direction, half in another for ease of harvesting. Often they're called marshes here actually, and commonly they're called bogs. But when you show up in the spring, you can see that the leaves are still a little bit purple from over winter. With the bud swell, break, and elongation, you get a vivid lime green that you're getting on like a young maple tree and then um, more and more green, and that's, you know, replacing some of the old leaves. And then you get pink with the blossoms. And then in late in May and early June, depending on your latitude in the state, so we kind of have blossoms come out late May, early June, and they're pink. And of course, not, not everything happens at once, so it's kind of a bell curve. You have them trickle in, and then you have full bloom, and then it kind of trickle out. And then after that, it's throughout the growing season, it's different shades of, of green. And that's when you actually can tell if there's like a pest infestation. So we had one attack our farm for the first time this year, and there were just big circles of dark green because they ate all of the young, tender leaves. So there's just pockets of older leaves. Reading the vines and seeing how healthy they are is something, a skill that you learn over time and um, something I was very excited to fine tune this year. And then you start seeing green, larger and larger green fruit and then white fruit and then pink and then increasingly red until you just see in some pockets of the beds like mostly red fruit and then some green leaves up until harvest when you remove the red fruit 
and the leaves are turning more and more purple and dark green as they, the plant goes into dormancy, which is happening right now. So what a farm looks like is you have these long rectangles, usually in Wisconsin rectangles, because we have newer design beds on the West Coast. They're kind of globular shaped because they're a little bit older. And then you see lots of water. You have these rectangular beds of vines of different colors surrounded by dikes with grass, but then you also see different reservoirs of water for irrigation, but then also for flooding, for frost protection, and for harvesting as well. I love how she describes what she's seeing out the window in the cranberry marshes. It makes me feel like I'm right there with her. And I can kind of feel the passion in her voice too when she talks about this family farming operation it's really exciting yeah i'm sure it becomes just as you know as a farmer it becomes a part of you like any of us who do something that we're passionate about your work your livelihood what you grew up in it really becomes a part of you and makes you who you are and you can definitely hear that as she talks about growing up and being on the the cranberry marsh and just being a part of all of this so i want to get back to a couple of cranberry facts of course you have some more cranberry facts for us. I wouldn't expect anything less today. So cranberries were used by Native Americans in this area quite a bit. They were used to make textiles, make dyes. Some tribes would use the leaves in place of tobacco to smoke it. Other tribes would use it as medicine. As a lot of us use cranberry juice, if you've ever had a urinary tract infection, you know this is the best way to cure it is cranberries. So cranberries, there's so much more than just that tube that you get on the the Thanksgiving table that comes out of that can that just jiggles around. And actually, cranberries were also used by the Chippewa tribe to bait snowshoe hair. So there's like all these different things you can be using cranberries for. That's spectacular. I hope that all of the listeners don't go out after this and try to smoke their cranberries. That I don't know if that's a good <laughs> idea. That sounds, that sounds like a bad Thanksgiving tradition to start. Now, maybe this seems obvious to some people but to me the biggest question that i have about cranberries and specifically cranberry growing is we're in the north it gets cold here early it's cold here right now and these cranberries are grown in water and they're harvested in the fall well i'm going to tell you one thing because i'm the crazy cranberry lady they're actually not grown in water they're only flooded in water in the fall to protect them from frost and to help with harvesting. But I'm not the expert on cranberries like Aurora is. So why don't I have her explain a little bit more about it? We take advantage of nature, basically the characteristic of the cranberries, the, the fact that they float and bounce has made some interesting harvesting cultures that's really been evolving over time. So about 95% of the industry so Wisconsin, for sure, is harvest with this wet method, which will borrow water to flood the beds a few inches where a tractor has driven over and they're knocked off the vines until they float to the surface of the water. If you ever look into a cranberry cut open, there's four big air pockets with the seeds in them, so they'll float. And then they're corralled into the corner, and then they're conveyed out that's how we used to do it. And now um, there's a new technology which actually uses a berry pump or suction that will suction up the berries and water up to basically like a bathtub where they will float and then bounce over rakes into a conveyor and then up. So this allows a lot of leaf waste, rotten fruit, 
dried aborted fruit that sinks to be cleaned before it goes to the receiving station. So we have probably one to two trucks of organic matter that's not needed, dried leaves primarily. One or two trucks per bed that we will dump on site and compost that the receiving station will have to. After the pump, that wash the initial bounce into a truck or semi, they're driven to what's called receiving stations. And we go to one just a few miles down the road and they're emptied into pools, large pools, outdoor pools. And then they're siphoned into a station that will rinse and clean them, test them for sweetness and color. And that's where trucks are weighed and growers will actually get their paid weight of fruit. And then from there, they're dropped into bins and they're sent to the freezer. So it's ironic that we do all this protection for freezing during harvest because within 24 hours or less of getting them to the receiving station, they're going to be frozen into the freezer. So sweet and dried or dried or juice products are all taken from freezer. So about 5% of the industry goes into the fresh fruit market that you can see a bag of cranberries in the grocery store. It's about only 5%. The rest is cleaned and processed, meaning anything happening after it's fresh picked, you know, in its, in its original form is processed. Everything is sent into freezers and pulled from there for production down the line in the future. So like me, growing up on a farm really sort of shaped what Aurora is doing now in life. For me, it's actually just doing the same thing my parents did in dairy farming. And for her, it's really about falling in love with plants and falling in love with the environment and becoming the ethnobotanist that she is today. Yes. And this is something that I've never heard of before. I'm guessing a lot of our listeners have never heard this term before. The simple thing is I that it's, it's really the intersection fascinating of people and plants and looking doing. at people and plant relationships. But that can mean so many things. It's rooted in the fact that humans are dependent on plants. We always have been. And as cities have grown and as people have and societies have grown in a way that life can exist being detached from land, we've kind of forgotten that. And I think that's where farmers actually, or anybody who works and lives on land, kind of see this and know this. And it's kind of like an obvious thing. What do you have three times a day? You have plants and animals and fungi, you know, and plants fuel the animals that you're eating. So, you know, to me, if we want to combat some of these large issues of our time, we have to accept and engage with the fact that we need to look at plants differently and plants individually, yes, but as a collective. So our environment, forests, you know, that hold immense diversity, um, you name it. And so looking at this kind of broad thing of people-plant relationships, and I guess, as I've said, like my wheelhouses have been cranberries and tea and plants that are cultivated. Um, so I, I say I kind of look within on the agricultural side. Uh, so I look at agrobiodiversity um, the diversity of our crops, not just how many plants do we have, but the diversity within the plants. Where are they? Are they protected? Can we utilize them? Can we preserve them for future use? You know, can we apply them to climate change? And I also look at biocultural diversity um, and its conservation, which is a huge area 
within ethnobotany that agrobiodiversity kind of fits within because it's the, it's the cultivated plants. And that is really looking at biological diversity and cultural diversity and how they overlap and how they are codependent on each other. The discussion here is that where you have biodiversity loss, you have cultural loss. And where you have cultural loss, you have mechanical loss of the knowledge of how to use them, you know, how to siphon out poisons to make it a plant edible, you name it. The health benefits of cranberries seem to be never-ending. They're a great source of antioxidants, a great anti-inflammatory. They're a good source for vitamin C, vitamin E, and copper, just to name a few. So it seems like a good idea for all of us to be consuming cranberries on the regular. Not a fan of cranberry sauce? Not a problem. This cranberry-infused vodka is a lot easier to make than you think, and maybe a way that we can get those antioxidants and anti-inflammatories at cocktail hour. You'll need four cups of fresh cranberries and four cups of vodka. Don't break the bank on the vodka. A middle of the road brand is just fine for this recipe. Place three cups of the fresh cranberries in your food processor. Process for just a minute just to break up those cranberries. Put the cranberries from the food processor, along with that extra cup of the whole cranberries, into a clean glass canning jar. Add in your four cups of vodka. Give it a shake and then set it on your kitchen table for at least seven days. Now you want to shake this every, well, once a day I say when you walk through if you remember. After seven days you can strain out the cranberries and you'll be left with this beautiful red vodka that then you can pour into a different container and give as a gift or just keep it for yourself. Cheers. Well, Inga, this has been an absolutely fascinating episode. I know so much about cranberries. Even if I didn't want to know so much about cranberries, I now do. So I feel like I have so much information that I'll be able to share around the Thanksgiving table this year. I'm sure your kids will love it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, nothing better than for teenagers to learn about cranberries on Thanksgiving. They are going to be so excited. Throw in a couple of dad jokes while you're at it, right? <laughs> I'll work on that. I need a good cranberry dad joke if any of our listeners out there have one. One thing I just want to leave with our listeners is just when you're sitting down to that Thanksgiving table and enjoying your meal and with your immediate family, it might look different this year, but just think about those farmers that are growing the food. Think about what they do all year long to prepare every meal that you guys eat. And I would also want to challenge everybody because I am a person who is not a big fan of eating cranberries on Thanksgiving, but this year I'm going to be more intentional about enjoying the cranberries on the table because I now understand where they come from, who they come from, and how important they are to our specific state and to our country as a whole. And if you don't want to eat them, Matt, you can always use them as a bait to trap a snowshoe hare. Well, I wish you all a happy Thanksgiving. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at aroundthefarmtablepodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, Around the Farm Table. Please rate us and give us a review. 
and I hope you'll gather with us next time around the farm table. I'm your host, Inga Witcher. And I'm Matt Kinzera. 